I didn't do it. It's not me. I just can't believe that I did it. But I certainly want to apologize. Well, that certainly sounds rational. Uh, <laughs> what are you talking about? What are you talking about, Paul? I'm talking about the newest primetime cable news uh, uh, host, Joy Reid, and what we called indecent exposure, Tuesday's commentary. And I just, I have to say, um, this has been one of those little uh, things that stuck in my craw. Whoa, we haven't really started this podcast properly, have we? I didn't do that. How did I forget? Well, anyway, this is This Week of Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. Paul Jacob was just talking before I interrupted. My name is Timo Verkula, but you don't care about that. This is for the third week of July 2020. And on this podcast, Paul talks about the big stories that have appeared this week at thisiscommonsense.org. So let's go back to the show. We live in a cancel culture where, boy, if anyone says anything that's not exactly right, they must be hounded and beat up uh, verbally, sometimes sometimes physically, but usually just verbally, thank goodness. And, uh, and social media has to go after them. They must lose their job uh, and be pilloried in, in any one of a number of ways. But years ago, uh, this is a couple of years back, uh, 2017, uh, Joy Reid is found, she has a, a program on MSNBC, and people find that she has written a number of blog posts back in the early uh, 2000s in which she made very disparaging comments about people who were gay or who she believed were gay. She kept uh, saying that uh, Charlie Chris, the governor of Florida then, now a, a U.S. senator, I believe, from Florida, is he a congressman? Um, he's a congressman, actually, uh, but that, uh, but that somehow he's, uh, you know, he was gay, and she made that allegation, and and she didn't like gay people very much, um, and sort of mocked them. Now this comes out, and she apologized for some of the uh, of the posts that had been discovered, and then all of a sudden, there were a bunch of new posts found. And I guess, I, I don't know what went through her mind, but I kind of suppose that maybe she thought, ooh, I can't, I can't take the second round of, of people seeing uh, how anti-gay I have been on my blog. And so she says, this wasn't me. I've been hacked. And her attorney says, we've taken this to the FBI and the FBI is investigating. Well, there's a little bit of a lull in the story. For some reason, it seems like with a lot of people, MSNBC and the whole Twitterverse uh, and, and, you know, cable news, you would think that there'd be a lot of talk about this. Didn't seem to be much. I don't know why. Um, but then as time goes on, it's somewhat ridiculous because some news does break. For instance, that these uh, uh, blog posts were found on the Wayback Machine. So, and the Wayback Machine is archiving uh, web pages again and again from different servers, different people doing the work. So it 
just doesn't make any sense that you would, you know, unless the whole world is, is in a secret uh, conspiracy against Joy Reid, there's no evidence whatsoever. And, of course, she and NBC, uh, MSNBC, which, of course, is a subsidiary of NBC, um, all argued that there was a lot of evidence that she had been hanged. Well, finally, she says, look, I realize there's no real evidence <laughs> that I was hacked, but she never quite admits to having lied about it. And in fact, she says, quote, I genuinely, I genuinely do not believe I wrote those hateful things because they are completely alien to me. But MSNBC, her co-host, uh, Rachel Maddow, who, who happens to be lesbian, uh, has forgiven her, accepted her apology. The whole world has accepted her apology, apparently, except for Paul Jacob, because she didn't apologize. You can't say, I didn't do it, and then apologize for doing it, unless you are giving a false apology or you're lying and you really did do it. And so I think we all know what happened here. Joy Reid made anti-gay comments on her blog. It's a free country. She can't be arrested for it, but she does have to face the music. One of the things about free speech is there's also free listening and there's also free reacting to what you said. So, People are free to look at what she said and say, I don't think I want you to host a, a primetime show on my on my network. But that's not what's happened to Joy Reid. What's happened is people accepted the completely phony apology and allowed her to continue to deny what is obviously the truth. And now this coming week, she will start with a primetime show, The Readout, um, get out. Uh, but, but the readout is her new show that will start on MSNBC this week. And it's just indecent. Um, I'm not a big fan of cancel, cancel culture. I'm not, uh, interested in holding something somebody wrote against them forever, especially, um, I, I might hold it against them, uh, if they never disavow it. And what they've written is, is garbage or offensive. Um, but if Joy Reid said, I wrote that, I'm really sorry, well, then, then let's start the, the movement toward forgiveness. Let's accept her apology. She hasn't said that. And so what we have is a basically, if you have the right connections, if you have the right political philosophy, perhaps if you have the right skin color, you can get away with saying certain offensive things that if someone else said it, Maybe without the the uh, all the support behind whatever lie they might want to say next, then they're going to be in trouble, but not Joy Reid. And so uh, um, it's it's uh, a a story that I think uh, you know won't be won't be covered that much in in future years. It'll fade away. The New York Times piece that I linked to at thisiscommonsense.org, uh, uh, and this is uh, Tuesday's piece, the uh, indecent exposure. But the New York Times piece 
basically explained it all and commented about it, but it didn't, didn't kick any tires, didn't really try to look at it at all. She's on the right side as far as the New York Times is concerned. She's politically on our team is what the New York Times, I think, decides and what their reporter decided who wrote the story. Um, and that's what MSNBC has decided. So any sort of ethics, honesty, transparency, decency, um, integrity, yeah, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Need not apply with any of that crap. If you're on the right team politically, who knows what you can get away with. If you're not, well, then any move you make, uh, you know, maybe maybe uh, responded to with a barrage of cancel culture. Have you been following the Nick? Was it what is his name? Nick uh, Cannon episode. You know, I haven't, and and uh, uh, someone I, I saw something on it the other day, and uh, yeah, but I, I I have to say I can't even really place what, where it is exactly. Well, he said some uh, really strongly anti-white things. Uh, in a, on a talk show of some sort. I've forgotten already the details. And one anti-Semitic thing. Lots of anti-white, uh, and, and just, you know, all whites are inferior to blacks. It's, it's, you know, it was, it was a, it's basically black supremacy ideas. And no one, I don't think, would have cared, but he said something anti-Semitic, and he, I, he wouldn't apologize, and he was canceled. So here he is, a black guy who was canceled for his opinions, but it was about anti-Semitism, it wasn't about whites, and it was ugly, but it wasn't, you know, it was just dumb, though, of course, too. I mean, it's, you know. Well, you, you know, people, most people who don't like racism don't like racism against white people uh, any more than they like racism against any other people. But this idea that basically it's okay to say bad things about whatever is the dominant culture, that's the way some people kind of want to play it. Or against white people, just because some white people did bad things, and and it's okay in that case to hold every white person who's ever lived responsible for every bad thing that every white any white person has done. Um, which, of course, if you apply that to other races, would would be completely ludicrous. But they want they want to pretend it's okay with white folks. But that's in essence how our laws are written. Like a lot of people. When, when we were debating the case, you know, should uh, a devout fundamentalist Christian baker have to bake a cake for a gay couple that wants a wedding cake for their wedding? Um, and, you know, some a lot of times people will say, well, could you make uh, could you make a, a Jewish person make a cake for a Nazi? And what people fail to understand is that the way those civil rights laws are written, the Nazi can be forced to do almost anything. The white person can be forced to do almost anything. There are certain races and uh, sexual orientations and, and uh, uh, sexes that are protected. For instance, uh, you're going to be protected if you're black. If you're Hispanic, once upon a time, you might have been protected if you were Asian, but they've kind of gotten kicked out of the minority business. I don't, I'm not quite sure why. I think they they misbehaved and overperformed on standardized tests or something. But but uh, and if you're a woman, you can sue. But men aren't going to be able to sue. 
whites aren't going to be able to sue because they're discriminated against. Uh, cisgendered people, that's people who are heterosexual, they're not going to be able to sue. And so our laws have created this or, or tapped into the same sort of attitude that it's not racism that's bad. The white race is bad. It's not sexism that's bad. Men are bad. Um, and you can just kind of go on and on. And, and if you're able to discriminate against some people, not against others, well, then, you know, we know everyone's equal, but it, it kind of turns out to be uh, Orwell's animal farm type of equal, which is some people are more equal than others. That was a great book, by the way. It's, it's actually my favorite Orwell book because the last line is so great. I don't remember the last line. I haven't read it in 40 years. So this is this is maybe I'm going to make a fool of myself, but. And you look from pig to man and man to pig and you couldn't tell the difference. That was sort of the idea. Uh, and it just it was just such a good ending. Uh, and he said it better than that. I'm pretty sure I didn't get it right, but that's the idea. Anyway, uh, yeah, there is a sort of weirdness involved with uh, double standards because they have the idea that all racism, sexism, it's really about power. So the people who have power can be racist or sexist, but the people who don't have power can't be. That's their rationale. And my rep response to that is very simple. Everybody has power in some context, and nobody has power in all contexts. So everybody can be racist and sexist, and everybody is sometimes exempt by that standard. And I don't think that standard applies. No, and that standard is such a load of garbage because it suggests that every male white person is somehow in charge of the government in some way that a lot of male white people I know are not. And, um, and, and of course, there's always uh, uh, the context. And somebody might not have any political power, but they might have economic power. Or they might have some other power. Or the truth is, uh, if someone who's, who's from a very powerful family uh, finds himself in a, in a wealthy family, finds himself in a poor part of town, and because he's rich, they hate him and, and seven people want to beat him to death, well, all of a sudden, they have the power and he doesn't. And you could argue that, well, it doesn't, you know, it's just uh, it's just power. That's the way power works. But, of course, what rational, sane, freedom-loving people would argue is that anytime people are denying other people's rights, it doesn't matter the race, the sex, the orientation, uh, the excuse. If you're violating someone's rights, that's wrong. And if a poorer person is violating the rights of a richer person, it's still wrong. So it's, uh, you know, we, we, at the end of the day, I think what is being accepted in lots of places, because that's the scary part of it. People have said this nonsense for a long time. The difference is it's starting to become acceptable. It's starting to become accepted and then regurgitated in a zillion different forms that we can all see in our daily lives and hear when we discuss things with people on social media or in real life every once in a while, hopefully again someday. Um, and that is really scary. Um, and we should be scared by it. Um, in some ways, you know, you look at uh, everything that's happening in the world, there's a lot of threats, but America is not going to be undone because we're just bowled over by other powers. Um, we have to worry about our, our internal uh, self 
in, in a political sense, in the same way that I think most rational people realize, you know, more important than what someone else might do for me or against me is whether I've got my head screwed on straight and whether I'm doing the right thing for myself. And, and if America, which is, has been for not always lived up to it, but, but, uh, sometimes, uh, we've been something of a beacon of liberty. If we can't figure out, uh, racism and other isms and, and we are at war with ourselves, then not only is this beautiful experiment in real danger, but the rest of the world's in real danger too, because we've, we've kind of been helpful from time to time and, and, you know, a house divided against itself, uh, will not stand. And we can't be very helpful to people if we don't have our own house in order. But we're talking in the case of Cannon and Reed, both. I mean, none of their rights were violated. I mean, they. I mean, you know, one could argue that maybe there's contractual rights up, up, up for something. Where I mean, it's if you have a stupid reason for firing somebody, you know, there could be some contract that's that's voided somehow. I'm not, you know, I don't know any of those things. Uh, but my worry about cancel culture is not that rights are being violated, but that the attitudes that go into these violations of decency are going to be carried over into law. Uh, where, I mean, I don't like any of these things that are happening in cancel culture. I don't think anyone should be fired for what they say. Almost never. I think it's just a bad idea. But these double standards, weird standards that apply in the culture are being carried over in Europe and Great Britain and Canada next door right. with right. hate speech laws. And that's why we have to say something, in my opinion, that that's the real issue, isn't it? Yes, but but even if we didn't fear it being carried over into law, it's worth us raising a bunch of red flags and saying, it's not healthy for people to think this way. It's not healthy. Like, like uh, um, the, the fact that, that Reed gets a promotion, um, you know, it's not, nobody's spending my money. Uh, it's like you say, this is a private actions. They're free to do whatever they want. But the reason I want to raise a, a red flag about it is because if we begin to live in a society in which there is no benefit to integrity and people just constantly see that the more despicable and nasty and dishonest you are, the better for you. We're going to live in a culture that's becoming more nasty and despicable and dishonest. And, and it doesn't mean that we should say, hey, our culture isn't everything we want it to be. Therefore, big government, would you start busting heads and making people say, this and believe that that's the that's the problem we don't want that but even if this didn't bleed over into law and of course you're right tim it, it is it is bleeding over in our country it has bled over even more draconianly in canada and elsewhere uh and the movement is in that direction so we have every reason to fear what will happen in law but i would argue even if it never moved into the law the culture we live in, we get to all piece by piece put together. And some folks who maybe have a, own, a, own a television network uh, or own controlling interest in the New York Times or your Jeff Bezos and, and you've got Amazon and the Washington Post, you might have a little bit more impact on that culture. But we have a right to stand up and say, hey, I want to add something to our culture. And what I want to add 
is that this idea being spread is a dangerous and bad idea and an ignorant idea and and raise those arguments all the time. That's part of just being a human being. We don't have that. The government doesn't have to do anything. Um, but but this sort of behavior is offensive. And it's it's the sort of thing that, that you know, the more people see that bad succeeds and good fails, the more bad we're going to get and the less good. Well, very good. Uh, I agree with you. I'm sure you're shocked that I agree with you on this, this issue. <laughs> Some people are going, no, we want more bad, less good. Yeah. Uh, though, you know, I do have this elaborate theory about uh, every aspect of society, you could have a free speech culture within it that isn't really about, you know, the First Amendment. It's a it's a free speech issue. So a uni- you expect a university to have a sort of free speech element that is, you know, everybody gets to speak up, different ideas get aired, but that's not really about First Amendment, just the same way. But in a family, you don't have that same expectation so much, but you do expect every family member to sort of have a say too, right? You don't say one one kid doesn't get squashed on for saying something and the other kid does. Generally, it's a good idea to treat people by one standard. And I think that sort of applies everywhere. Yes. And, and the truth is, the, the, the better the standard, the easier it is to apply it across the board. Uh, it's only when we want to have kind of loaded up standards that are, that are a little bit slanted that it gets harder to apply them across the board. Your Monday piece was on something different, though, uh, though maybe not completely. <laughs> well, uh, well, it's it, it. Monday's piece is something that uh, that I heard about years ago, and we've talked about, I think, in one way or another, a couple different times. And that is the that there's been a number of court cases that have uh, where someone has sued the police to say they did nothing to protect me. In a, in a case that is just obvious that I needed protection, and they stood by. Um, if, if people are like me and they're big Seinfeld fans, it's sort of like the, um, oh, the Good Samaritan law that was applied at the end of that show. It ended with them going to jail because they didn't help somebody out who was being mugged. Instead, they make jokes about it. Um, uh, it's kind of classic Seinfeld, but um, but this is kind of that same thing, except this isn't good Samaritanism. This is good policing. This is someone who's paid to intervene when crimes are being committed and protect the innocent and arrest the guilty. And what we're finding, and, and this isn't new. Uh, I remember years ago when, when uh, much of Ferguson, Missouri was uh, in flames. Uh, there was a lot of complaints, myself included, that why did the police, why not bring people in to stop looting and, and arson? Uh, we don't want businesses to be burned to the ground, do we? And of course, uh, Freddie Gray, who died in police custody in Baltimore uh, years ago, there were riots after that and there was looting and, and arson and so on. And it certainly appeared, in fact, even in the public statements made, I believe it was uh uh, what's her name? Pew, who was the mayor then. She's now, I think, in federal prison uh, for one of one of her scams. But but her view seemed to be, and then she verbalized it that you know we're kind of letting this play out, uh, get their frustrations out or something. Well, my idea, and I think the idea of most people out there is that 
why are we paying for police if when our property is threatened or our lives are threatened, they're kind of letting people, you know, play out whatever anger and frustration they have on us and our property. Um, that's, that's kind of a scary, scary situation. And, and, you know, the idea is the police ought to do something when our property, our lives have been threatened. Now, some people on the, on, in the commentary, uh, push back some, uh, uh, on, on Facebook and, and a couple of people, you know, made the argument that, well, wait a second, you can't, you know, every time there's a, uh, your store is broken into, you can't sue the police for not protecting you. And, you know, valid point. Um, that's not what we're, what we're really talking about though, in the sense that this isn't a, the police are responsible to stop all crime. This is the police are responsible when they are there not to look the other way. And you wonder, um, are we in a situation in which really the, the police are going to look the other way and then we're going to go to court and the judges are kind of in a sense going to look the other way and say, hey, you know, you're paying all this money. We got all this police force and you're entitled to nothing, nothing. Someone burns down. If there's a riot happening, yeah, we may take the weekend off and your house may be destroyed. You might be killed. Can't win them all. That shouldn't be the policy. And we can all recognize that you're going to get to a point in some uh, civil unrest scenarios where the police don't have the manpower to stop what's happening. Um, sometimes you run into that in war. And that's when you retreat. And so there are going to be times where the police have to retreat, where they can't they could go into the situation and try to save someone, except then they're they're overwhelmed and they're going to be in trouble. And so there are times where strategically, sensibly, logically, it does make sense for the police to stand down or to retreat, but then to regroup and to come with more uh, numbers and to then retake that land to free the people who might be held against their will. You know, we've had some of these places in, in uh, what is the Chaz in, uh, in Seattle, which is no more, but there were a couple of people killed there. Um, and, and, you know, it's not necessarily the people who ran the place that killed those people, but there wasn't the sort of protections there should have been. And someone who's paying taxes to the state of Washington, to the city of Seattle, uh, to the federal government has some reason, I think, to expect that, hey, if a mob takes over my town, you're not going to just kind of hang me out to dry. Well, it's too much trouble to save you, too much trouble to protect your rights. Well, then don't take my money in taxes. So this is <clears throat> this is not a a uh, litigious hey, let's create a new reason to have lawsuits all the time every time there's a robbery of a store or vandalism. What this is, is a cry from the American people who happen to pay bills and work hard and make our economy go in many ways, whether as owners of a store or workers who would all like to keep working and making money and feeding their family and paying the rent and building a better world one day at a time. 
these are the people that government civilization is all about. And it's not okay to say tough luck anytime there's, there's riots, anytime there's a political disturbance or a, uh, any other sort of disturbance, we just are going to let it, let it run its course. If that's the case, um, I'll tell you what, there will be a reaction over time, and that reaction will be more and more private security. And of course, that's already happened. That has been an explosion over the last two, three, four, five decades to where now in most countries like the United States or, or Great Britain, most industrialized countries, there are twice as many private security officers as there are policemen. And I'm, I'm not bemoaning that. Uh, there are times where if you have, you know, you, you need a little bit more security for what you're doing, then you got to take that on yourself. That, there's nothing wrong with that. But if we go to a world in which the police don't protect all of us, our life and our limb and our property, then over time, the wealthy are going to buy their own security and the poor are going to continue to what? Pay taxes and have no security whatsoever? So something's got to give here, and uh, I don't think we've heard the last of this. I sure as heck hope not. There's one concept that comes to mind when I hear stories like this and when we see this play out, and that's the concept that Sam Francis bequeathed to us. He was a writer from the 90s, basically. Uh, he called it anarcho-tyranny, and that's where the government lets crime run free and just lets people get away with stuff, but then clamps down on certain other things that peaceful people do. Regulations, you know, the environmental regulations, uh, business code violations, all that. They'll destroy a small business for breaking a law, but they're not going to deal with the criminal. And I mean, there's a number of reasons for this. One of them, of course, is that real criminals that is, the violent ones, are dangerous to deal with, and why would you want to deal with them? And the other, and it's so easy to, to, to just suppress others. But also, it's, it's an interesting, he argued that it has an interesting pl political play, is that it encourages people to spend more money on p the police, even if the police aren't doing something. But as you say, that, that can't play out forever. That's, that, has a, that has a limited shelf life for that kind of idea. So we're going to see some interesting changes, I think. I think you're I think you're right. And that's a good point. I want to mention two other quick points, uh, because we got two comments at the uh, website on this that I thought were worth uh, just just noting. Um, one, uh, not so free, uh, who's a regular commenter uh, and uh, somebody I know. She's a wonderful woman. Um, she says it's not really the fault of the police. It's the political leaders of the city, and I know that's the case in Baltimore uh, years ago. I don't know in each of these cases, you know, exactly what, how the decision was made. You would think that there'd be some communication between the mayor and the police chief and so on. Although at, at the end of the day, the mayor is the chief executive and could make that decision to order the police to stand down. But I think her, her general point is correct that this is not a matter, and I, I hope, I, I, hope uh, I didn't give that connotation uh, with, with the way I, I wrote the commentary, but um, this is not a situation in which 
the police are, you know, they may be a little scared. I'd be a little scared to go into some of these situations, but they're not saying, gee whiz, uh, the mayor wants us to go restore order, but we're too scared to go in and restore order. For the most part, these are political decisions, and these are decisions that can be influenced by those of us who are citizens who are supposed to be the government. We, we may not be, but we're supposed to be, and we can scream you know, more loudly. But I, I think she makes a good point that I hope was uh, uh, people didn't think that I was just, hey, the police are lazy, no good. Um, this is, is a matter where I think politically there are decisions made that don't make much sense and certainly don't make much sense from a policing standpoint. Because I think any time you let things go wild, it is a it's a, you know kind of sort of an indication to people who like things to go wild that hey you could do that as well. And I don't think that's a I don't think that's the signal we want to send. Um, the other thing is that uh, uh, Pat uh, had a comment that I think was was very interesting, and that was that people are voting with their feet and. That is, you know, New York City has lost population. New York State is losing population. And she, she pointed out both Cuomo and de Blasio as, as people who, you know, I wouldn't want to, she wouldn't want those folks uh, in charge of her city or her state. And um, I, I do think that you're going to see uh, folks leaving cities if this sort of thing continues. And I think it's one of the things that's driven people to leave uh, some of these cities. But I will point out, um, almost all the cities obviously are run by Democrats and Republicans in times like these like to point that out. But I think that this is not simply uh, a, a Democratic problem. I think that there is some political risk to go into sending police in to restore order. And that from a risk-adverse career politician viewpoint, the easiest thing in the world might be to say, well, there were riots, what can we do? We're, we're going to follow up and then just let it burn itself out, so to speak. Very low risk for you. Now, if you have a business on that street, it's, it's in embers. It's gone. Call your insurance agent. Um, but for the politician, that's probably the safest course because if they go in and maybe the police kill a couple of people or injure them or the police get injured or killed, all of a sudden now you've got a bigger political problem. And, and of course, long term, if people realize, no, they're not going to let us run wild, they are going to restore order, there will be force used. Um, and I'm not looking, I'm not, you know, this is not a, hey, come in, guns blazing. That's, you know, there, there, are, there are ways to police that are justified and there are ways that are not. But, but it is the sort of thing that I think you send a message that this is going to be allowed or it's not going to be allowed. And that's kind of an important message to send. Um, and I'm afraid that, that that political push to not restore order, but to let these things play out, because no matter how much damage the rioters do, it's not your fault if you're the mayor or the governor. It's not your fault. It's them. They're terrible, bad, bad rioters. But if you do something to stop it, now you've made a move and you could be held accountable for that move. And so I do think that there's a certain resistance 
um, to doing anything that they could be held accountable for. And and that's not not unique to politicians. They, they tend to think in those terms more than anyone else, I assure you. But it's not totally unique to them. Other people think the same way. It's why incentives have to uh, have to be pointed the right direction or people go the wrong way. Similar incentives are at play during the whole lockdown business, don't you think? I mean, that's one of the reasons the, the governors are still pushing policies that make no sense. Yes. Because they don't know any way out. I mean, they the, the, whole, the whole criteria has switched. It's not flattening the curve anymore. It's, you know, any new contagion and then we have to crack down again. I mean, that's just all silly, but they don't know what to do, right? No, and and the truth is, if all the businesses go under and it's an economic collapse and poverty returns to America and millions of people all over the world starve to death because American largesse and abundance is not available to help them. Well, if you're the mayor of wherever, if you're the governor of wherever, no one's going to blame you for that. I mean, the economy uh, going into the toilet, there's going to be a lot of people blaming Trump or blaming somebody in Washington. It's not going to be your fault. And so yet if you open up too soon, you know, especially if you're a Republican governor, um, if you're a Democratic governor, the media is not going to point out death counts. You're not going to get blood on your hands in the same way. But if you're a Republican governor and you open up sooner than the New York Times, the Washington Post and the AP want you to, you are going to be lambasted and called a killer. And nobody likes that. And so, again, you may think, look, I'm not sure exactly what to do. Nobody has a crystal ball. This is a new virus. This is a pandemic that nobody's been through a pandemic. Um, and, and so you've got all this uncertainty. But the one thing that's certain is if you act this way, you take all kinds of risk. And if you act this other way, you have very little risk. And I'm talking about political risk. That's the, that's the risk they care about. They don't want people to die. But if more deaths are associated with less political risk, I'm sorry to tell you this. And it doesn't seem like it should, it should be human nature, but it's human po- politician nature. They're going to go with the less political risk for them, more death for you scenario. And um, I don't know how to say that any other way. That's just it's absolutely so. And uh, and it's you know, it's scary. And it, it does mean we're in a situation where who knows, um, you know, it, it's kind of like I've said from the very beginning when they talked about the lockdowns, you know, and I don't you know, I'm not an epidemiologist or whatever. And, and uh, but I wondered, it's not like we can wait this out. It's still going to be around in three weeks or six weeks or whatever. And um, and it, it seems like there has been very little talk about how long can we do this? How long, like if, if we shouldn't go back to school and we shouldn't go back to work, how long can we not? Because things do have to get produced or we can't have them and use them. Um Food has to be grown and picked and and processed and sent to the grocery store and so on, or we're going to be really hungry and really desperate. Um, and so there's there's this idea that we can just shut down the economy, even for weeks. But some people seem to think we could do it for six months, a year, a year and a half, two years. 
that's not going to happen. I mean, it could happen, but it would be the worst disaster in human history. Um, so you look at all these things, and and again, we get to this utopian way of thinking that somehow we could have a society where we don't have to go outside if there are if there are germs, if there are viruses, if there's we don't have to go outside. We don't have to risk anything. We can just sit in our homes and we'll be drop shipped money and every American will get a free you know, membership with Netflix and we can watch movies every day. That seems to be how they're building up how society works. That ain't how society works. And um, it's just it's it's a little bit insane. Um, and, I'm, you know, again. It's not. I think some people would say, "Well, all these things should open up," and I think I think they should, um, if they can do so safely. And I don't know everybody's business. I'm. I look at the schools, and I think young people are not as contagious when they have it. They're not as likely to die. And of course, the lethality of COVID nineteen is very, very low, not high. Um, so it seems to me that, I mean, there's some real question with this virus, whether we can even get herd uh, immunity, whether the immunities that you get when you have it last long enough to really even create anything of a herd mentality. And that's a little bit scary. But any scenario, this virus could be around for a long, 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 long time. And at a certain point, you, we just can't all hide in our homes and, you know, until it goes away. That's not that's not a, a rational approach to it. So what do we do? And I would say, um, and maybe I'll do something on this next week. Um, we've kind of said this in so many ways, but maybe not this clearly. The answer to the problem is one word, freedom. Let businesses be free to open up when they feel it is safe to open up. Let people go to work when they feel it is safe to go to work. And of course, the businessman is going to be weighing the safety along with the fact that he doesn't want his business to go under. Um, the worker is going to be weighing that along with their financial needs and other things like we all do. You know, when I was uh, 19, I had to go get a job and so on. And I remember thinking, wow, this is like, well, what do I do? You know, it's like I'm I'm forced to like earn my own keep in this world. It's it's you know it's it's tough, but that's the reality, and that's the reality even when there's a disease out there. We have to make our way in this world, and I can't afford not to work for a couple of years or for six months or for whatever, and so I'm going to try to figure out how to work safely. Now, I happen to be in a pretty lucky position. I work out of my home, so I'm, I'm way ahead of the curve on, on good luck as far as that goes. But the, but the whole point is we want people making their own decisions about what's safe and what's not safe for them for several reasons. One, they know their own work, their own business, their own job a lot better than some bureaucrat in Washington or the state capitol knows it. The governor doesn't know how everything in the whole world works, how every business in his state or her state functions. So let the people who have the knowledge and expertise use that knowledge and expertise. So one, let people who know more make the decision. Secondly, think about what we do when we just 
issue decrees. We're going to shut down all the businesses. Well, if your business is shut down no matter what you do, well, then you turn your brain off. Take a break. What, what else can you do? But if your business is shut down until you can figure out how safely it can open back up, now you've got a lot of business people at home with their business shut down, pacing, driving their husband or wife crazy, thinking about how they can open up their business safely. That's millions of minds on this problem or millions of minds told, turn off. I want to live in the society when there's a pandemic that's breathing down on us. I want to live in a society where people are told to keep their minds working, not in the society where they're told, turn your mind off. People from on high are going to tell you when everything needs to be done. So um, this is this is a it's a huge issue that is so fundamentally about freedom and about political control and power. And so we we are we are not taking advantage of the brilliance of a free people uh, during this pandemic, and we're suffering because of it. Well, uh, we've gotten well over forty five minutes uh, into the in today's uh, podcast, and we've gotten two two comments that's uh, commentary is done. Because you're bad, Tim. I want you to know it's all your fault here because you brought up this, uh, you know, the COVID and the and the the biggest issue of the day, which we really didn't take on in a head on way this week. So uh, and maybe it's my fault for not taking it on, but I'd like to think it's your fault for bringing it up. Okay, very good. I can <laughs> I can accept that blame. Uh, just long as uh, I, I don't go the way of Nick Cannon, I guess. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Uh, your Wednesday commentary is, is is very different from the craven politicians of our age, of in our cities and governorships. Uh, this is about Vladimir Putin and somebody in China. So it's a kind of another level of thing. Yes, yes. It's, uh, you know, it, it, I believe that it can always get worse. Uh, it's a terrible maxim, but it's it's true. And just think of Russia and China if you're if you're angry. I had somebody this week say that uh, Biden was just as bad, and I thought, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm certainly no fan of Joe Biden, but he's not just as bad as Putin or Xi Jinping. Um, I'm pretty confident of that. But anyway, uh, I wanted to write about uh, Putin because last week. The referendum, or actually two weeks ago, uh, there was a referendum in Russia that allowed him, because it passed, to now serve. Well, I, sh I should take that back. This is how dishonest the whole thing was, uh, that I can't even quite say it that way because that's not quite true. There was a referendum that where people voted and sort of legitimized the constitutional amendments that Putin and the Congress of People's Deputies, I think is the, is the name of the, their legislature, uh, had already enacted into law. In Russia, the people don't have to vote on it for it to be part of the Constitution. And so that's what, that's what happened. He held this vote simply as a way to get popular legitimacy. And um, I was doubly offended by what Putin did. One, because I love term limits and Putin hates term limits and was getting around the term limits. This uh, new, under this new uh, constitutional provision, 
he can serve until he's 83 years old, another 16 years. Uh, and um, anyway, it's, uh, you know, at some point, the, the uh, term limit of death will, will fall on him. But I, I made the point that Putin is not the worst dictator in the world, not the most evil leader in the world, that he is, in effect, the Avis Renicar of authoritarianism. Remember the old Avis ad where we're number two, we try harder? That seems to be Putin. Xi Jinping, I point out, two years ago, he got the Chinese Communist Party uh, to throw out the term limits for him so that he can serve forever. Some people might be surprised that after Mao, even the Communist Party in China realized, you know, we better have term limits because these people get in with total power and it's really hard to get them out. And it's not so healthy for the country. And in fact, when Putin was talking about term limits maybe a year or two ago, he even made the point, as we covered in, in uh, Common Sense, uh, just go to thisiscommonsense.org and in our search engine, put in Putin, it'll come up for you. But, um, but a year or so ago, he had kind of said, well, you know, someday it'd be good if we were able to have term limits so that we had more people to step up and be leader. But of course, not now, not while Putin is serving for two and three and four decades. We can't afford it now, is, is what he had to say. <clears throat> but the, the takeaway from this is, is just how dishonest it was and why it was. And here's how dishonest the referendum was. First of all, in the United States, a lot of times there are single subject rules. Because you, if you're going to put two or three or four different issues into the same ballot measure, you're kind of jerking voters around. They have to vote for this that they want, but then they get this they don't want. And so a lot of states have, have enacted single subject requirements. The referendum, this is a single ballot measure, one vote up or down. It was one vote up or down on 206 different constitutional amendments. So log rolling on steroids? I don't know if it's log rolling on steroids to the nth degree, and we need some other clarifying thing to say it. I mean, just beyond belief. There are estimates from different people who looked into the voting that as many as one out of every four votes was fraudulently cast. Kind of your usual Russian election, although they said it was even worse than usual. And the other thing, of course, is that they don't allow campaigning on the opposition side. All kinds of things were done where people were bribed and people to keep their job had to say, I love this referendum, please vote for it. Even though most of the push to vote for it was to vote for it because of things like it outlawed <clears throat> same-sex marriage, not because it gave Putin more time in office. So really interesting how they played all these games to get this passed. Um, but part of the reason I think they felt like Putin felt like he had to do it is that his approval rating is pretty low. And when you consider that he controls the media in his country and anybody who's running as an opposition candidate is likely to get arrested, um, it's amazing the different you know, twists and turns that Putin's willing to go through to have this air of being 
a legitimate popular leader. It almost makes you think of Xi Jinping who and the, the Chinese communists who just don't play any games about democracy. They have no interest in democracy. They're not trying to pretend that they're legitimate, although I guess they do in their own way, but certainly not uh, because they have popular support. Uh, they seem to disdain popular support. So Putin is going to be around for a long time and Xi Jinping is going to be around for a long time. According to the new unterm limits uh, that they have, but we'll see. I'm uh, I'm hopeful that neither one of them is going to be around for as long as their term limits uh, would allow in Putin's case. And uh, and I'd love to see enough change in China over the next decade that uh, Xi Jinping is in jail in China, not in power. Putin's uh, gambit here, his little play, was sort of a, like an omnibus legislation. It's not really it's really the same thing as what they do in Congress with omnibus bills, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, you, you know the great LaRoche Foucault saying uh, hypocrisy is the tribute vice pays to virtue? I've heard that. Maybe we could say uh, omnibus legislation is the tribute dictators pay to democracy. Yes. Although the interesting thing here, too, is the vote wasn't required. So even if the vote had gone against them, the, the law still changed. And again, to pull people out to vote on something that their vote doesn't really matter is always a sign that you're playing shameful games with democracy and that you're not a true small D Democrat who believes in, in voters making decisions. Well, your Thursday piece is uh, another dictator problem again, but this time we're talking about the, uh, the cowardice being on the side of uh, a major company in America. Yes. And, uh, you know, Bill Barr came out, and this was after this commentary was already put to bed. In fact, it was the next day after it ran. Uh, but Attorney General Bill, Bill Barr came out, and uh, there was an article in the Epic Times uh, talking about uh, his speech that he gave, calling out by name a number of U.S. companies, including Apple, uh, for kowtowing. That was the term he used, very appropriate here, kowtowing to the Chinese communists. And, um, you know, this was a, a, this particular commentary, I Quisling, um, was about an app that had been developed for the opposition primaries. Um, as, as regular readers uh, may, may remember, back in December, there were elections, local elections in Hong Kong. Huge turnout, first time that pro-democracy candidates ran as their own pro-democracy party, and pro-democracy candidates went from zero seats to 87% of the seats. That's how overwhelming the vote was for pro-democracy candidates. Um, now we have the, a new round of elections, and these are not just the local uh, bodies, but for the citywide, you know, territory-wide council. And, um, and it, it, I won't go into all the details. Uh, Hong Kong has never had a truly uh, universal suffrage, uh, what I would consider a fair democratic uh, process to elect representatives. They've always been picked in different ways. And of course, Hong Kong, 
uh, or uh, Beijing picks the leader um, and and now it controls all kinds of things through this national security law. But um, in these elections, the opposition uh, pro-democracy folks decided they wanted to hold a primary to winnow down their candidates and, and be able to take their strongest candidates to the election in September. And, and of course, these are elections in Hong Kong. They're not quite universal suffrage elections, but they're, uh, they are democratic. Never is there democratic elections like this in China. And you can bet they won't long be uh, taking place in Hong Kong either unless something changes. But there was a tremendous turnout in these elections. 600,000 people voted. Hong Kong is 7.5 million people. They've had rallies or marches where almost 2 million people have been estimated to come out. Now, in a city of 7.5 million people, that's a lot of people. And in a primary that's not an official primary, but has been set up by these opposition candidates to have 600,000 people come out and vote, especially when, as we link to in this particular commentary, we link to Carrie Lam, the chief executive of uh, Hong Kong, telling people that voting in this primary may be a criminal offense under the national security law. So 600,000 out of 7.5 million for a primary, not so bad when you consider that they are risking committing a crime by going to vote it's something altogether different. But anyway, they, they put together an app. And uh, it appears that the uh, Android app uh, seemed to work just fine. The app for uh, Apple uh, did not work. Somehow, it, uh, Apple didn't like it. It didn't seem to, to, you know, they rejected the first iteration of it. And so they came back to them with another. Then all of a sudden, they couldn't get responses from Apple. And of course, uh, one of the developers said, we think our app is being censored by Apple. Now, why would Apple censor their app? Well, Apple wants to do business with China, which is the second wealthiest country in the world, which has 1.4 billion customers uh, that they hold under lock and key. And of course, Apple wants to do business there. And we've seen all kinds of uh, companies through the years, from Google to Apple to others, Bloomberg, uh, that have done all kinds of things at the behest of China, like kill stories and not tell their readers what's really happening because the Chinese don't want them to, or to help the Chinese develop firewalls that block people from getting outside the Chinese Communist Party-controlled internet within the country. Um, and, and uh, you know, Apple has yet to, to explain itself, but I think that uh, it's a real problem. And, and one of the things that, <clears throat> you know, some people I think might look at this and say, well, you know, business people are going to go where the buck's on. They don't have any morality. Um, and that is often true. That's why you and I and everybody listening and everybody not listening too, frankly, uh, has to take some interest in what's happening in our world and maybe a little responsibility. And we have to pound on companies and stop doing business with companies that don't 
adhere to our values. We want companies to have values like freedom, free expression, um, pro-democracy, but we don't, uh, we can't really expect that they're going to have those values if we don't. They want to make a buck. That's what they're in the game for. We're thinking more globally, and so we have to hold our businesses, our vendors, to account. And uh, anyway, it, it, one of the uh, parts of this commentary, I quote uh, the CEO of Telegram, and China, uh, right after Telegram started, uh, you know, banned them because they wouldn't do the bidding of the Chinese Communist Party. And he says, quote, it's pretty obvious that the Chinese government's desire for total control over its population is incompatible with our values. And so they moved on. Telegram, the, the company moves on. The CEO says, look, they, they want us to help them keep people in bondage. We're not going to do it and move on. Apple, I think, is sitting there going, huh, well, should we help them keep people in bondage or not? And I think we got a lot of our businesses thinking along those same lines. I mean, that's the NBA is a laughing stock with what happened last year, where they, oh, somebody said something about Hong Kong and China didn't like it. This is our world. And we were talking earlier, Tim, about culture and how we all have a part in playing and making up that culture. And frankly, we all have a part in making up the economic culture. Uh, and we got to, we, you know, look, I, I, we're going to put the pressure on Apple and so on, but it's got to come from us. Ultimately, it has to come from us if we're to keep our business sector from selling out to the Chinese and giving us a world in the 21st century uh, where anything you say, you better be worried about whether Beijing likes what you said or didn't like what you said. It's worth Remembering that uh, Apple famously and quite heroically stood up against the deep state, the American deep state, uh, refused to provide the back end uh, into their pro uh, security products. And uh, that seemed really heroic at the time. But note what they won't do. They'll stand up to the U.S. government, won't stand up to China government. And they won't stand up to the mob either. You know, the, the, the woke mob that wants to take people down. They... Uh, Tim Cook has pretty much come on the side of squelching hate speech and deplatforming people he doesn't like. So Apple has deplatformed a number of people like, I believe, uh, Alex Jones and others, people who are on the outs of the woke mob. So that's one thing. That's, Apple, that's where Apple is. It's you know more pro-China, more, more, more mob, less U.S. government. So that's, that's one of their things. Google arguably is a deep state creature, is that Google was created with lots and lots of uh, support from NSA and other organizations within American military industrial complex. So one could argue that Google, by uh, backing the Hong Kong uh, business, is doing, is doing the work of some part of the American foreign policy. Yeah, it is uh, the, the connections between the CIA and Google. And, and of course, um, those uh, same connections are there with other media companies and media personalities. And we've talked about that before. Uh, it's, you know, that's that's extremely scary. 
I, as you know, complain just nonstop about technology. And I, I had a Mac and I have an iPhone. I complain about the iPhone. I love the iPhone, but it doesn't, the, the, my, my calls aren't the best. And of course, I do use my phone to make calls. So I, I've been frustrated there. The fact that they would not unlock their phone for the U.S. government was a huge factor in me deciding to buy another iPhone. Um, because I just, I said, look, they care about me, the customer, more than the threats they're getting from the FBI. But I also, you know, as you laid that out, Tim, I think you did it very well. Part of it is they don't risk their customer base in the U.S. by standing up to the U.S. government. They do risk their customer base in China because, of course, the Chinese government owns all those people in a way that's sickening and not quite the same as the, as the way our politicians think they own us. Um, and so that's, I think, somewhat responsible. If, if they were threatened with losing their market in the United States, they might throw in with the government. And again, we can see this works out. It, it works out for individuals. It works out for companies. If you don't have any morals, any values that are decent, then you're going to get pushed all over the place. And if, if, other people stand up and support having values, it makes it easier for the, the person who's in the crosshairs to stand up. And so that's why, you know, look, I don't, I, I'm not speaking to the boardroom uh, at Google or Apple or what have you, or the MBA. I'm speaking to the American people and saying, we have to be serious and committed that we're not going to do business with U.S. companies that play games with tyrants in Beijing or anywhere else, but especially in Beijing, because that's the number one threat in the world right now. And I'd say the number two is is uh, uh, Mr. Putin in, in Russia. Uh, and, and the same is true. You know, we have to stand against our own government. When our own government does something wrong, we've got to stand against it. Um, so this is not a America's wonderful, China bad, you know, anybody who's not America can't be as good. What I'm, I'm talking to people, I, you can live in the United States, you can live somewhere else. All of us have to stand up for basic freedom or it will get wiped off the board. There was good news on Friday this week, sort of good news coming out of Oregon of all places. Yes, and it was very good news. Uh, it was good news, one, because this has been a very tough year for ballot initiatives, for people petitioning uh, their ideas onto the ballot or putting a referendum where they take a state law that's been passed and put that onto the ballot, because it's hard to petition with social distancing, with lockdown orders. Uh, there's nobody out. And the last thing people want to do when there's a pandemic and, and a virus that's spreading and we're not sure how it's spreading as fast as it's spreading, is to grab a pen and a clipboard from you and talk to you uh, in close proximity and sign a petition. So the petition process has really been wrecked this year. Uh, depending on the timing, some people didn't, didn't get as much harm as others. 
but it's really been heard. And a lot of uh, folks have gone to court asking the courts to extend the deadline, lower the signature requirement, allow there to be electronic signatures. There is no reason whatsoever that people couldn't be signing these petitions electronically, online, totally safely. Well, there is one reason. And the reason is that our so-called representatives don't represent and don't want us voting on anything. They want to control in a monopoly way the passing of laws. That's where they get their power. And so there's not a legislature in the country that is passing laws now saying, here's how we could facilitate citizen democracy. They don't want citizen democracy. They don't like it. That's something people have to understand. Our representatives don't want to empower us. If they did, they would. And so this has been a tough year. And this court decision, which lowered the requirement, extended the deadline, is welcome news. And maybe it'll help other places where there are lawsuits and so on. But the other part of this story is that it helps another initiative. And this initiative's goal is to, well, it, it, it's an effort. It's not a single initiative, but the, the effort is being run um, uh, by a group called Move Oregon's Border. And they're looking to put measures on a number of county ballots. Counties in Eastern Oregon, which is the rural area, and Southern Oregon, which is also rural area. Almost all the population is in the Wilmette Valley. And, uh, and so they want to leave Oregon and join Idaho. It's a, it, Idaho being a more rural state, they might have better representation and uh, it fits them better. And so that's what they're wanting to do. And I raise it because as, as uh, we've talked about a lot this year, you know, uh, we believe in self-determination. And one reason this could happen is because it doesn't really change the partisan makeup, there's no new state, there aren't new senators. And so, you know, if this is going to, uh, you know, if, if you're going to have basically one rural congressman who represents Oregon today, well, if that, those counties go over to uh, Idaho, well, Idaho is going to pick up another rural congressman who will represent those counties. And and so it's it's not the partisan uh, question mark and variable that it would be if, uh, if you were adding a whole new state with two new senators. But one of the reasons I like bringing these up uh, is because I think because of slavery and the Civil War and the idea that you can't somehow secede from the Union, and of course, if the reason you want to secede is slavery, no, that, that doesn't work. But, um, but I'm a believer in secession, in self-determination in the idea that any geographic political area could vote democratically to change its government, maybe to leave this country and start its own country or form a new country or leave this state and join another state. And I think the more we talk about this, um, I'm hopeful the more people will realize, you know what, this, there's nothing to be afraid of here. This empowers people to get better representation, either you know one way or another, and as long as it's all done democratically, it's all done in in free and fair elections, 
um, let people make those decisions. And so self-determination is not just about Hong Kong or Catalonia or Taiwan, uh, or it's about, it's about greater Idaho, which, which is what they want to call the new state. And I think, I think they have to stick with Idaho. None of this greater Idaho, but, but anyway, um, this is something that, uh, is always treated as kind of some craziness. It's not craziness. It's people trying to figure out what's the best way to settle, to, to, uh, set up my affairs. What's the best way for us to have a state that, that better represents us. And I think that that's a great thing for us to be thinking about. And there ought to be a way to do something about it 100% democratically. In the state I live in, which is Washington, the evergreen state, Al-Qaeda by and by, um, there is a move in the eastern part of the state to secede from the western part. Uh, that is the the inner part of the state, where there, it's deserty and lots of you know lots of agricultural uh, land and and normal people as opposed to people in Seattle. I mean, that's how they would look at it. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Seattle r- r- sort of runs the, the the they just out vote everybody else in the state. And it's just really annoying to the Eastern Washingtonians and increasing the rest of the state. They want to get out of Washington. I'd love to have them do that, but they want to call themselves Liberty. And I'm, I'm offended. That's actually, the only thing that offends me in modern politics might be that they want to call themselves Liberty because I just don't see them living up to that one. You know, there's, there's also, we've talked about the state of Jefferson and in that one map, uh, if you, if you go to this, uh, uh, particular commentary, greater Idaho goes forward, question mark. Um, there's a map and, and some of those counties dip down into Northern California where they've had, uh, what is it? Six, eight, uh, more counties, uh, that want to form the state of Jefferson. Uh, now whether they could, whether they could get the Congress to agree to allow them to use the name Jefferson now is is open to question. But again, people are looking to find government that works for them. And as long as it's decided in a democratic way, uh, in fair elections, majority rules, it seems to me that it makes sense for people to, let's, let's adjust our affairs. Change is not always a terrible thing, but as it happens in a, in a good, healthy process. So anyway, I, I like talking about these, uh, uh, different changes because the more we talk about them, the more possible they become. And so much of politics, so much of life is what's possible can happen and often does happen. But if it's not possible, people don't try. And, uh, and I think one of the scariest things in recent years and maybe it's just you, you get older and and uh, and people are more cynical. But I think there's a lot of people who will tell you we've passed the point of no return. We've lost our republic. This new generation doesn't have the same commitment to these values that the older generations had. What all kinds of you know views and concerns that that we're losing that sense of how precious our freedom is and how it needs to be not just protected, but expanded. Um, so it's, uh, uh, I think, I think, you know, the future isn't written yet. We get to write it, at least as long as we're on this planet and have a pen. And, uh, and we ought to be 
taking these sorts of things serious. Uh, when I raised it a couple of weeks ago, I think, Tim, when we talked about uh, the idea that they'd make D.C. a state, um, a lot of people had heard the story about D.C. because it was a big story that, that week. Um, but uh, so many people, when I mentioned, well, we could, we could have the state of Jefferson, that might do it in such a way that politically there'd be the votes in Congress to do it. It was like, what are you bringing up this crazy state of Jefferson thing? Well, none of these things are crazy. And we, we know about D.C. because we talk about all these people in this area, a very tiny area, that aren't represented. And, of course, they do need to be represented. And uh, D.C. used to be about 70 percent black. Now it's, it's uh, just under 50 percent black. Um, and so it, there's an element of this is, you know, the, the white society blocking representation of, of black folks. Well, Everybody, regardless of where they live or what their color is, deserves representation. And it somewhat surprised me how nobody had ever heard that, you know, there are some rural people someplace who'd like to be better represented. And this is not a matter of people in rural areas saying, hey, we ought to get the same number of votes for 10 people as you get for 100 people. But it's people in rural areas saying, if, if our numbers are so tiny in the grand scheme of things that we get no attention paid to us, well, then we want to form our own little state, area of a new state, our own jurisdiction, where we can get the sort of government that we want, that we our needs can be met, that our concerns can be heard. And to me, that's what it's all about. And it's, it's every bit as valid for the white gentleman in Northern California or the black woman in Washington, D.C. Their needs and, and uh, wants for, for representation are every bit as valid as anybody else's. And, and we ought to find a way to meet them. Well, on that note, and well into our second I, hour... <laughs> Yes. And again, let's remember all viewers, listeners, readers, people of all ilks, this is Tim's fault. He brought up another subject. No, I have one more thing I have to say. And that is, I know that I've become something of a fashion plate for the American people. They watch this podcast on Sunday when it's the, the visual, the video. And they wonder, what is he wearing? Because I want to dress just like him. I mean, you know that that's happening out there, big time. And uh, this is a T-shirt that I got in Taiwan last year when I went to the game where the China Trust brothers, that's the uh, Taichung team, won the second half of the season. And so at the end of the game, all these streamers are coming out and it's, you know, it's the same as when somebody wins a championship or world series and pouring champagne over everybody's heads. So it was very exciting. It was so neat. Well, this week, the China trust brothers won the first half of the 2020 season. So it looks like my favorite team in Taiwan, and there's only four teams, uh, but my favorite team, has already secured a place in this year's uh, championship. So I'm, I'm very excited. We may not get baseball in the United States, 
But so far, my baseball in Taiwan is going quite well. Very good. Why don't you uh, scroll back, and we'll uh, end the end the whole program with the with the picture of you in a T-shirt. Look at that. Yeah. Now you are muscles. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to This Week of Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at, at Workman, that's Workman with an I, not an O, on social media, and at locofogo.net. You can find This Week of Common Sense on the web at thisiscommonsense.org and at SoundCloud, and by podcasters such as Apple, Google, and Stitcher. And thanks again for tuning in.